You're listening to the Podcast Network. Find more great podcasts at www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Listen. Learn. Evolve. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, to the one and only, the original, the only and the best Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. This is episode 19. And considering we were only ever going to do 15, <laughs> we're, we're, doing, we're now at 19 and we, uh, we're going to be brave enough after the slight drubbing we received from a couple of our listeners over our treatment of the uh, Battle of Trafalgar in our last episode. Completely scandalous, our treatment of it. We're going to go from the firing pan into the fire, I think, this week by tackling the Peninsula War. Welcome back after your recent surgery, the Honourable J. David Markham. Well, hello, Cameron. Uh, glad, glad to be back. Uh, I'm, I'm, I may talk a little bit slower now as I recover, but... But uh, no sacrifice is too great to make for our listeners. I have rousted myself up and propped myself up. Uh, I'm, 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 unfortunately, I'm having to take a, a much weaker medication these days, but, but the, the glory days will return. I also point out, of course, is I, I was absent from the, the postings on, on the website for a while, and, and I did go back and added a few in. I, I noticed that most of them... Uh, uh, were attacking you, of course, and, and not attacking me, which I thought was the way it should be. Uh, <laughs> I agree. But but I also, you I'll know, take a bullet I, I for like you hearing... any day, sir. I'm sorry. I'll take a bullet for you any day, sir. Well, that's right, that, and 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 I would expect that at, at a minimum. Uh, I, I enjoy hearing people's uh, disagreements with me, and and there were some who who pointed out some aspects of, of, of the Battle of Trafalgar. There was a, a little dispute over just how much impact it had long-term uh, in the period. And, and those are all the kinds of things that, that good historians will disagree on from time to time. And I, I don't mind that. And, and to the contrary, I, I enjoy it. Even, even if I think the posters are wrong, I appreciate their, their posting. I, I don't necessarily appreciate you know, some of the occasional sarcasm uh, that creeps in, and, and I, I wish we'd have a little less of that. But, but overall, the postings are very, very positive, very much appreciated, and, and I've tried to get, to get back on, on, on a number of them. And two or three of you have sent me emails, and, and I apologize if I haven't gotten back to the emails, but I'm afraid I've got about almost 400 emails in my end basket. So... I'll I'll try to plug through those. I got my income taxes done yesterday, so you know that now now uh, I'm I'm free at last here to uh, to concentrate on what I enjoy. Was it a, a positive outcome for your uh, tax return, sir? Well, it depends on whether you're me or the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I actually uh, I get a a little bit of a refund, although I noticed that the almost the entire refund is based on. The fact that I bought a uh, a Honda Civic uh, a hybrid and, and there's a big tax credit for that and and thank goodness for it too. Well, that's very good of you. And I, um, you know, I was very excited when it came up to do my last tax return because I thought finally, after 20 years of uh, wasting money on Napoleonic books, this would be the first year when I could actually claim it back against my tax return because obviously this is a part of my potential income earnings as a business. But of course, uh, when it sure. came around, uh, my accountant said, well, you know, in order to claim a tax return, you actually to have earned some income. And uh, I earned no income in the last 12 months. Uh, so it was all for naught, but maybe next year. Well, I'm, I'm a little surprised. That's the difference in tax systems. Uh, for a few years, at least, they allow you here to to show a loss and still write things off, eventually they expect you to show a profit or else uh, fold it up. But at least tax-wise, but 
but at least for a while you can show a loss and and in uh, in spite of the you know fairly decent popularity of, of of some of my books I I because I travel so much and stuff I still do show something of a loss at any rate they our, our good friends out there have have tuned in to hear us talk about uh, the Peninsular War and not our assorted ailments and and tax uh, situations and so I suggest we get uh, we get to it again I'm, I'm glad to be back so the Peninsular War, Spain, and um, again, I'm going to put a big disclaimer at the front of this and saying this isn't a period of Napoleon's affairs that I am uh, overly familiar with, although I, I have done my preparation for today, but I'm hoping you will be able to guide me through this process. Now, I, I guess there's a couple <laughs> of things we need to be able to remind people of uh, when, when we're talking about Spain. The first is the role of the continental system, as it was called. Now, we, we've covered this on an earlier episode, and people who want to know more about the continental system should go back and have a listen to, I think it was uh, episode 13 or 14. I'll, I'll confirm that. But why don't, why don't you just recap on the, the basis of the continental system for us, David? Well, the idea of the continental system, and, and, and by the way, let me let me jump in and say that you beat me to the disclaimer, because of course the the, uh, the campaign in the peninsula and uh, the peninsula is not is not my strongest point either. I've I've focused elsewhere as well, but but the continental system essentially was an economic blockade of Great Britain. Napoleon had come uh, to to understand that that for uh, for a variety of reasons. Including, I, I must say, that Trafalgar certainly reinforced the, the feeling anyway, uh, that, that he was not going to likely have success invading England. I don't think the dream was completely gone, at least not for a little while, but it didn't seem very likely. And yet, it was also clear that he wasn't going to have very much success achieving peace with England or with Great Britain because it was clear after the fall of the the peace of Amiens, that, that Great Britain really wasn't that interested in making peace with Napoleonic France. So if you can't beat them on the water and, and by the Navy, and if you can't invade successfully, and they keep wanting to fight you, the only real option that you have is to somehow defeat them economically. If you can create enough economic havoc so that the people of England demand peace so that trade with the continent can begin anew, then maybe you have a chance, not, not to defeat them in the sense of conquering them and now they all got to speak French, but in the sense of now we can have peace, we no longer have Great Britain bankrolling these various wars of co coalitions against uh, Napoleonic France, and we no longer uh, have to worry about you know England actually invading and so on, uh, and and if you can achieve peace through an economic blockade leading to an economic uh, victory, uh, then then that's probably is, is the best that, that Napoleon could hope for, and on paper, and looking at a map, it it may make some sense, uh, up up to a point. You you can see where he was coming from. You can understand. The idea, well, if you can just take a heavy magic marker, uh, they didn't have these, uh, but if you had a magic marker and you could just draw a line around the coastline of, of Europe uh, and say, you know, they shall not pass, uh, then sure, it makes sense. Now, of course, on the other hand, if you look at that same map and you see countless harbors, countless miles of shoreline, uh, countless nations that may or may not be uh, as interested in this blockade as you might want them to be, including, of course, your own brother on the throne of Holland and so on, uh, then, you know, it may have been a fool's errand uh, right from the get-go. Uh, you can probably make arguments both ways. I think in that show on the uh, continental system, I pointed out that it really did have some success and that, in fact, it was creating havoc in some sectors, at least, of of the British economy, but it was also creating, creating havoc on the continent. It was hurting the French economy, 
we always assume that the, 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 the British economy depends on trade because of them being an island nation and, and they, <clears throat> they have all these colonies which give them raw materials, but they have to be able to manufacture them into something that they can sell and they journey trying to sell it on the continent uh, and, and you know, so forth and so on. But we, we also had to recognize that the continental economies depended on trade, on foreign trade, and it couldn't all be just on the continent. So it, it hurt both sides and became extremely unpopular. All that said, you, you, if you have something that springs a leak, then you have to plug the leak if you expect anything uh, to, to come of it. And essentially what we have going on here uh, is an effort in the peninsula, starting really in Portugal, not Spain, uh, to plug a leak to assure the success of the continental system. So let's talk about Portugal. As you said, the, the Peninsula War began in Portugal. Now, the King John of Portugal wasn't participating, had chosen to abstain from the continental system. Portugal at the time, I think along with Sweden, were was one of the countries that didn't already have a formal arrangement with France. And Portugal decided not to participate in the continental system. Now, right, for... he was actually... He was actually the, 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 the Prince Regent, uh, John, and, and not only was he not participating in the system, but he was actually allowing the British Navy uh, to, to use one of his ports uh, at Lisbon, actually, I think, as a, as a Navy base, uh, uh, which, of course, was, was not sitting well with, uh, uh, with Napoleon. Uh, and, and so, basically, Napoleon, uh, and, and we're, we're bypassing some introductions, Stuff about basically Napoleon issues what amounts to an ultimatum to Portugal and says, "Listen, uh, you need to to get with the program here, uh, and if you don't, we may have to come down there and uh, and and try to do a little bit of convincing." So this was his uh, uh, moral justification for invading it. It's well, the enemy of my no, the friend of my enemy is my enemy. That kind of thing. I think to a to a certain extent that's that's probably the case. Uh, if you if you look at this whole peninsular war in the context of of overall Napoleonic uh, strategy and, and Napoleon's overall career, it's probably the the the, the least justifiable of, of of all of his of his major actions. Uh, it's 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 more difficult to justify the in, invasion of the peninsula, and it actually was the invasion of, of Portugal because at this point uh, Spain is a, a somewhat uh, reluctant but but is an ally of uh, of, of, of Bonapartist France. Uh, but but Portugal, uh, you know, it's it's pretty clearly a situation where Napoleon is 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 doing what he feels he needs to do. He gives them a chance to cooperate. They don't cooperate, uh, and so he moves in. Uh, you and I and, and, and many of our listeners would probably say that that's one of the, the, the least justifiable moves uh, that Napoleon uh, has made. You know, I think I, I made mention back when we did the Treaty of Tilsit that you know, a lot of Napoleonic historians believe he was sort of at the the peak of his powers at this particular point in time, certainly in terms of the amount of Europe that France had alliances with, in terms of successive military victories. And uh, it, it, it appears that this decision to invade Portugal was certainly not one of his uh, better decisions in retrospect. But I guess... Well, what it wasn't. It was... By the way, there, there was... Uh... And I don't remember the details, and in, 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 in all honesty, but but uh, let's put it to you this way: as a result of making peace at Tilsit, now he no longer has—at least he doesn't think he has—any worries in Central or Eastern Europe. With the signing of the Peace of Tilsit, the Treaty of Tilsit, he is now able to say, "I've got the 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 continental system in place." all the way from the Urals, all the way from Russia, across, except for Portugal. 
Portugal is the only place really truly left, I think maybe Sweden but as well, but, but Sweden's more isolated. With Portugal, goods come into Portugal and now they can move through Spain. Spain's a big country and it's not you know, run exactly in a, in a uh, ship-shaped manner. Uh, goods can move up through Portugal, across the Pyrenees, uh, and on into uh, to, to, to France itself. Uh, we'll probably mention more than once that Napoleon might have been better off doing what he could with Spain, but really drawing the line uh, in the Pyrenees at the southern border of France and trying to control those passes. Uh, but again, hindsight is, is, is 2020. So in uh, 1807, the Treaty of Tilsit was signed. On October 27, 1807, there was a treaty signed between Spain and France called the Treaty of Fontainebleau. And they, so there was, at this time, uh, there was a, an alliance, I guess, between Spain and France, Spain being run by uh, an offshoot of the Bourbons that had previously ruled France. And this enabled Napoleon at this point in time to send his troops under the commands of Junot through Spain into Portugal and basically took possession of Lisbon. Well, that's, that, that's, that's right. Uh, Spain was at least nominally an ally. And in the negotiations for the Treaty of Fontainebleau, uh, Napoleon made it clear that one of the things he would expect of an ally is permission for substantial French armies to march through them uh, on their way to uh, Portugal. And, and, and the Spanish government, well, I don't know if they were necessarily thrilled about that or not, but they were willing to do it. They didn't necessarily see that as a, as, as a problem as long as the soldiers were kept under reasonable control. And, and from whatever, uh, that, that seems to be, uh, to be the case. So, so uh, that's, that's, that's what happens. Uh, uh, the, the, the French army of about 25,000 men or so uh, moves uh, uh, into, uh, uh, into position and uh, didn't really meet too much in the way of, 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 of opposition. Uh, and uh, the royal family beat a hasty retreat to, to, to Brazil. Uh, under the protection of the Royal Navy, the, the British Royal Navy. Uh, and so uh, uh, the, uh, the French and the Spanish actually sort of divvied up Portugal a little bit, uh, giving uh, uh, control of part to Spain and part to uh, France. France levies a, a huge fine. Seems to me it was around 100 million francs or so, which was not chopped liver in those days, probably isn't now, and uh, uh, so so it went. So we should point out when you say the uh, Portuguese royal family scarpered off to Brazil. Brazil was actually a, a colony of Portugal at the time, wasn't it? it? Was it was under the control of Portugal? Oh sure. Uh, in fact, that's that's always kind of a a trivial uh, a trivia question for people, at least over in the United States. You know. You know, what, uh, what language does the largest country in South America speak? And an awful lot of people sort of assume that since most of Latin America speaks Spanish, they usually say Spanish, and of course, uh, Brazil uh, speaks Portuguese because it was, in fact, a, a, a Portuguese colony. And, uh, you know, a, a little bit of background in terms of Portugal. At the time, it was run by the Royal House of Braganza, and uh, it was a royal dynasty which ruled Portugal from 1640 through to 1910. This little point of Napoleon's invasion notwithstanding. And uh, uh, controlled the Empire of Brazil from 1822 to 1889. So they must have had a relationship with Brazil before that, I guess. And they, they obviously well, had a complex relationship with Spain as well, Portugal. I know that uh, Philip II of Spain sent Spanish forces in there in 1580. Because they obviously well, you've been doing you've been you've been doing your homework on on you know what we could call a prelude to all of this. Uh, at any rate, getting getting back to this, as you know, goes into Lisbon. Uh, you know the 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 mucky mucks are gone. They had left two days before. 
Zuno becomes the, the governor of Portugal, and, and it appeared that things were fine. You know, now you've got Spain as your ally, <clears throat> you're controlling Portugal, you can draw, you know, this line along the coastline and keep British, you know, material from coming in. But, of course, it doesn't work out that way, as we know. Capturing Portugal is fine, but now Spain starts to provide a problem. They've never been really a big fan of the continental system. And they hadn't been, at least the presidents, hadn't been a very big fan of France in, in recent years. And uh, there was a lot of stuff going on in the, the, the Spanish courts that, that, that just begged for someone like Napoleon to come in and sort of set things straight. Let me, let me comment on the Spanish people. Oh, let me, we may be taking this a little bit out of order. The Spanish people were very conservative, the peasants. And we're going to find, and I'll probably repeat myself in a little while here, the peasants didn't like the French Revolution with this anti-clerical, anti-religious uh, bent. It was very anti-church, anti-Catholic church, uh, an awful lot of, of, of uh, church officials lost their heads and so on. And the Catholic, uh, the, yeah, the Catholic uh, peasants of, of uh, Spain were very devout Catholics, very conservative Catholics, very much in favor of the church. So they didn't care too much for that. Remember, uh, and a lot of folks who you know, say, yeah, yeah, go, go peasants against Napoleon. Remember, this is the country of the Spanish Inquisition. This is where they tortured you to death if they thought you said something blasphemous. Uh, this, is, this is where you really didn't want to be uh, something other than Catholic, not all that many years earlier. So it doesn't have a, a history of religious tolerance, shall we say. And uh, so they certainly didn't like France, and they didn't like what they considered to be uh, a non-believer in, in, in terms of Napoleon uh, and so on. So you've got that. On the other hand, the intelligentsia, of Spain, the middle class, the educated class, the, the business class, they liked Napoleon, they liked the French Revolution, they liked the reforms of the Code Napoleon and, and the economic reforms and so on that Napoleon had brought to France, and they were quite content to cooperate with France, although they weren't always thrilled with the continental system because it did hurt uh, some business. But they were run you know, Spain was run by uh, Charles IV, or as you'll see in, in Spanish text, of course, Carlos uh, Cuatro, Carlos IV, who was a Bourbon uh, related to uh, all these Louis uh, that, that have ruled France for so long. But, but old Charlie uh, wasn't exactly a credit to the Bourbon. Uh, he, he, he really was not very smart. Uh, he, he didn't really get it. He, he, he half the time, I, I, I really don't think he knew what was going on. Uh, there's, there's been some suggestion that he was not even all there mentally. Oh, I can just uh, see the emails flowing in from Spain this week. No, no, I, I don't think very many Spanish uh, citizens today would look back at, 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 at Carlos as, as one of their the finest examples of, of, of their leaders. I mean, I think if you look back at British history, French history, Spanish history, American history, uh, heavens, maybe even Australian history, uh, you know, you'll find some leaders that were really, really great, and you'll find some that were on the low end. And, and I think that most would probably say Charles was, was on the low end. And he was, he was a despot. He, 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 he didn't believe in in, in being a constitutional monarch like, like you had in Great Britain. <clears throat> you, he didn't believe in being an enlightened monarch like, like you had with Napoleon. He, he believed that his, he was the old divine right of kings type, you know? And, and I, again, I don't think very many people today would look back at that as, as something to brag about. Uh, and, and his wife, uh, Queen uh, Maria Luisa, 
who as far as I can tell is, is, is fine, except that <laughs> she didn't care too much for this guy, and so she took up uh, uh, with uh, the, 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 who became the prime minister, Manuel de Godoy. Uh, now, Manuel de Godoy was quite the figure. I've, I've got his memoirs, although, to be honest, I've not, I've not had a chance to read them. Uh, and, and these guys were carrying on this torrid affair right out in front. The king knew it. Worse yet, all of these common people knew it. Well, you know, the, the conservative Catholics of, of, of Spain were not amused that they had a queen who was, you know, you know having a, a, a major sexual affair uh, while she was still married to their king. Uh, so the whole royal family, you know, was kind of taking it on, on, on the chin, uh, especially the queen and her lover, who, who, believe it or not, was given the title Prince of Peace. Uh, who, who I really can't, uh, uh, I can't imagine how that could have taken place. And Ferdinand, who was, the, who was the son of the king and queen, wasn't real thrilled about this either. Uh, Ferdinand really, along with Godoy, was running the country. And the, 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 the king was not particularly uh, effective uh, interestingly enough, there there was a a falling out between the king and his son, and Godoy actually was siding uh, with the king, King King Carlos or King Charles, uh, against Prince uh, Ferdinand, I suppose because of the queen. Uh, Ferdinand was at one point arrested for treason, uh, but not a whole lot to happen as a result of all of that, and. To an awful lot of people in the in the middle class, the intelligentsia of Spain, this whole thing needed a resolution. And believe it or not, King Charles, King Carlos, and his his son, who was you know struggling with him for power, appealed to Napoleon to mediate the situation. Well. That's the fox guarding the hen house or something like that, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so Napoleon, of course, says, sure, I'll come on down there. And he, he you know, he, he sent an army down there, actually, and who, who quietly uh, took uh, over some of the Spanish forts along the border in the Pyrenees. Uh, he sent uh, Marshal... Humura, his brother-in-law, uh, to occupy uh, Madrid in March of 1808. Uh, and then, and this is <laughs> one of these amazing little twists, he, he, he invites the royal family to the French city of Bayonne. He says, listen, why don't you come and be my guests? And we can talk, and we can mediate, and we can find a resolution to all of this. So picture in yourself sort of graphically, uh, Cameron, what's happening here. The border is now controlled by the French army. There's a larger French military presence in Spain. There's, of course, a French military presence with a French governor in Portugal. And now a relative of Napoleon, a marshal of the empire, uh, is sitting in the capital, and Charlie and Ferdinand and Godoy are all going to France to talk. Well, you can, you can imagine what, what the impact of this is. Well, the impact, of course, is that there's a power vacuum in Spain, which Murat, by default, fills. Uh, Charles and Ferdinand are convinced in quotes, uh, to abdicate all rights to the throne. So now there is no king uh, of Spain. And Godoy is pretty much bounced out of power. So, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, this was good. You know, very few, again, of the 
elite, of the intelligentsia, of the leadership cadre, of the, of the merchant class in Spain. Very few of them missed any of it. And the Spanish peasants, at least for a while, thought it was good too. They didn't like the despotism of the king, and they didn't like the, the uh, flagrant uh, uh, affair of the queen and Godoy. And, and, and they weren't necessarily uh, wildly thrilled with, with the sun, although uh, they, 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 they might have been a little bit interested in him. Uh, so at first they rather liked Murat. They rather liked the French. They said, okay, fine. Now we've got a, a semblance of order here and, and so on. But Murat, who, who I actually rather like overall uh, in Napoleonic, uh, Napoleon's career, doesn't do real well as, as governor or whatever his title was of, of Spain. He's got, he, he's got an obsession with keeping order. He's determined that there's not going to be anyone demonstrating against uh, French involvement. And so he, he pretty much has the, the army uh, marching up and down the streets all the time, a little bit like the cop on the corner routine, only it's the squad on the corner, it's the French squad, and, and they don't speak Spanish. And, and, and they don't really like it uh, all that much. Uh, so for a time, it goes well. Now, if Napoleon had been smart, in my opinion, he would have pulled Ferdinand, that's Prince Ferdinand, the son, aside and said, look, you support me. You help me out with the continental system. You put in some reforms that I really think Spain needs, and I'll support you. And you can be the king, and there will be a, Spain, a Spanish king on a Spanish throne, and Spain will be happy. But I need to be able to have, you know, shall we say, significant influence in, uh, in, in, in what you do. And I think Ferdinand probably would have gone along with that, at least for a while, and the Spanish people, I think, would have been delighted. But instead, uh, uh, you know, Napoleon's not not interested in doing that. Uh, Napoleon brings in Grouchy, of all people, to, to uh, be the military governor uh, of Madrid. Uh, a riot breaks out in April, April 1st, actually. Uh, Grouchy restores order. Uh, and, and now there's arrest warrants that are going out for all the other members of the Spanish royal family. And the people of Spain, the peasants, not the intelligentsia so much, but the peasants, and particularly the people outside of Madrid, uh, have had it. But even those in Madrid, in May, you know, a month later, May 2nd of 1808, there's a riot in Madrid. And French soldiers were being hung from street lamps left and right. <clears throat> uh, hours went by. An awful lot of French were killed. A number of Spanish citizens were killed. Uh, eventually, the cavalry and, and even the artillery gets brought to bear, and, and, and things are, are taken care of. Uh, but it's very clear that Napoleon's strategy is not working, and that Murat and Grouchy may not have been the best people to be there. Uh, not to mention Joseph. Of, I'm sorry? Not to mention Joseph. Well, we haven't got to Joseph yet. Well, it wasn't Joseph in there by now. I thought they sent Joseph in uh, earlier on. No, it seems to me that Joseph comes in a little bit later, actually. Oh, okay. Well, I think you're right, uh, actually. It was um, May. Yeah. The, the, Joseph the... comes in in June. Yeah, that's uh, right. We're, we're, we're still in May. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, Murat decides to declare essentially martial law. Uh, he's rounding up all sorts of insurgents. He's having them shot. Uh, I mean, these famous paintings by Goya, the uh, Dos de Mayo and Tres de Mayo, 2nd of May and 3rd of May, are, are examples of, of that. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, there's a lot of, apparently, a lot of atrocities on the part of the French. Now, to be fair, you're entering a a whole new ball game of what we might call guerrilla warfare or a warfare and to put it in modern terms of you know conflicts in the world today uh, a war against an insurgency 
you're beginning to see an insurgency. You're beginning to have a situation, and history does repeat itself, my friends, where you have a foreign army that came in uh, with the tacit support of, of, of a government which is no longer in power, in, in this case, the, 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 the king and the prince, uh, and, and the, the people don't like it, and they begin to rise up. And you're not so much fighting a regular army, you're fighting what we might call terrorists. Uh, the term guerrilla uh, warfare uh, comes into place. Uh, and, and, and that's going to be what happens. And I said to be fair, uh, as a prelude to this, because the Spanish commit atrocities as well. I mean, if they catch a, a handful of French soldiers, uh, they will, they will, you know, capture them. They'll castrate them. They'll beat them up. They'll torture them. They'll hang them. They'll do whatever. Uh, some of the peasants will hack them to death with farm tools and so on. So there's atrocities on both sides, as there often is in a guerrilla warfare. Uh, but of course, the Spanish uh, painter uh, Goya is only going to highlight the uh, the atrocities uh, that were supposedly committed by the French. And I say supposedly because one suspects that there's exaggeration in the descriptions of some of these atrocities, just as there's basically ignoring the, the atrocities that, that, that are taking place on the other side. But, but no one comes off uh, uh, real good. Well, Napoleon is not amused at any of this, of course. And he doesn't see Murat as being a particularly good replacement for the king or the prince. And so he, he decides that he wants to put a member of his family, a direct member, Murat's a, family by, a member of the family by marriage, a direct member of his family onto the throne. Now, every now and then, some of my colleagues will say, well, this is terrible. Excuse me a second here. This is a little medicine. This is terrible. Uh, but, uh, you know, how dare him bring in a, a non-Spanish uh, king? Well, of course, it happened all the time. Uh, king George III was from Hanover, didn't speak any English when he first became the king of England. Uh, in a few years, we'll talk about how Sweden takes the traitorous uh, Marshal Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte and makes him uh, king of Sweden. So having, you know, someone come in from a different family, a different country, is not all that uh, wild of an idea. So Napoleon goes shopping for a king. First guy he offers to is uh, his brother Louis. Uh, Louis, not, not unwisely, uh, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which I think is he, he was quite happy where he was and, and he probably didn't think he'd do a very good job, uh, declines the honor of being the king of Spain shortly after there was a major uprising with atrocities. Uh, Jerome also quite wisely uh, turns it down. Uh, these two brothers could clearly see that, you know, you've got this hatred of the French Revolution and its anti-clerical aspects. You have a hatred of the French army's uh, occupation. You, you've got all these atrocities and so on. Uh, things are going to hell in a handbasket. I think I'll stay up where I am. Thank you very much. So now he goes to Joseph. Now, Joseph, <laughs> Joseph has it made. You and I, Cameron, should be so lucky. I mean, he's sitting there in Naples. Now, I've been in the palace in Naples. I've been to Naples, of course, and it's a, the weather's beautiful. The people are wonderful. It's a gorgeous place. You've got bloody, bloody, big volcano, bloody big volcano sitting just off the coast of it, though. I don't like that. You're talking, you're talking to a guy that lives close to Mount Rainier and also Mount St. Helens. So, well, you, I, know, you learn to. I have compared St. Helens and Rainier to uh, the, um, <laughs> Krakatoa. <laughs> Vesuvius. I was about to call it. Yeah, Vesuvius. Before, I think, you know, people living in Washington are just as crazy as people living in Naples for living that close to a volcano. But anyway. Well, that's, that, that's true enough, but at least the people in Naples have a wonderful climate, which I'm afraid those of us in, 
of Washington can't claim. Not to mention uh, the beautiful Italian rate, women of Naples. I'm sorry? Not to mention the gorgeous Italian women in Naples. Well, there's no question about that, although there are some, some, some beautiful uh, women in, in Washington as well, I hasten to add. My, my wife among them, naturally. Uh, but Napoleon, I mean, you know, as I, as I think I say in, my, in, in Napoleon for Dummies, you know, he's got beautiful beaches, he's got all these Roman ruins to visit, which, of course, is <laughs> something I'd love to do. And, and, you know, why would he ever want to leave? Well, he didn't want to leave. He had no interest in leaving, and he argued against it. But Napoleon is persuasive, and he could let the other two brothers get away with declining because he always knew he still had Joseph. Joseph wasn't going to be so lucky. Joseph has to have wished that Napoleon had come to him first so he could have declined it and then stuck it to one of the other brothers. At any rate, on June 6th, uh, Joseph was declared a king, king Joseph of Spain, or, or uh, King Jose uh, in Spanish, of course. Uh, Murat, talk about a good deal. Now, I love Spain, and you know Madrid's a beautiful city, but given the situation, Murat gets yanked out of the place that hates him and gets sent to replace Joseph as the king of Naples. <laughs> so there's no justice in the world from... <laughs> From the standpoint of Joseph, obviously, he gives up this idyllic kingship to take over a quagmire, something that will eventually become known as Napoleon's ulcer, and and he gets to uh, give up his beautiful kingdom of Naples uh, to uh, to to Mura. Uh, so June sixth, uh, in comes Joseph, and out goes Mura. Although Mira, apparently, from what I've read, liked being in Spain. He would have been content to stay, but he, but he, he had too much baggage. Now, all this said and done, and, and we're probably running a little low on time here. Well, not yet. Uh, Joseph, although he didn't want to do it, and all the Spanish didn't appreciate having someone stuck in there, Joseph really tried to do a good job. But you got to understand, first of all, there's virtually daily riots. There's now more than just the occasional riot. There's organized opposition. Guerrilla warfare units are being organized. Uh, more and more French soldiers are having to stay in, in their camps. It becomes more and more dangerous for them to go out and anything other than a significant force. Uh, and, and yet, Joseph comes in, he's kind of quiet, he's moderate, he's, he's a pleasant fellow, and he wants to be a good reforming king. He wants to bring the kind of reforms that much of the rest of Europe had embraced. Whatever else we may feel about Napoleon, most of his reforms were good reforms, they improved the nations uh, in, under, you know, under which uh, they, were, they were taken. And, and uh, it, had Spain gone along with it, then that would have been fine. The intelligentsia, the merchant class, they liked it. They were interested in having many of these reforms. Napoleon also pointed out as best as he could to the common people and everybody, Listen, you know, I've made amends with the Pope. I brought Catholicism back to Europe. I pushed back the French Revolution's anti-clerical position, and I've made it okay to be Catholic in, in, in France again. So give me a break. But, you know, the Catholic Church understood that he had not brought in the conservative Catholic Church. They understood that, that the Catholic hierarchy of the clergy was appointed by Napoleon, uh, and so on. Uh, and the, the church was wealthy, it was corrupt, uh, and it was very unpopular, by the way, as it had been at the time of the, of the Inquisition and also at the time of the Reformation, uh, with, again, with the intelligentsia, with the, with the elite. But the average Spanish peasant was going to take the conservative, even despotic, Catholic Church of the time, 
over the enlightened Catholic Church, if you want to call it that, and the enlightenment of the French Revolution, uh, and so on. So, you know, even though Napoleon ended the Inquisition, which was still around, at least in name, uh, the peasants were not interested in reform. They weren't interested in religious tolerance. They weren't interested in divorce rights. They weren't interested in a secular policy. Uh, it's a little bit like Iraq. I'm sorry, but, you know, you've got a peasantry that, that really truly believes that the church ought to be the law of the land, just like you have in Iraq where instead of the Catholics, you know, thinking that the church law should be the same as secular law, you've got the, the, the Muslims, many of whom believe that, that Islamic law should be the same as, 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 as the law of the government. Uh, and so rather than Napoleon the Liberator coming in and bringing needed reforms, which would have been so much better for uh, the Spanish people, instead uh, he is seen as a usurper, as a, as a, as a demon, as the Antichrist practically, uh, and the people are having none of it. And uh, boy, that, that's, that's, that's grim news. Uh, so when Joseph actually arrives in Madrid on the 20th of July, uh, and uh, he, he's, he's no dummy. A lot of times people think that Joseph is not bright, but the fact is Joseph very quickly understood what kind of a quagmire <coughs> he had leapt into. Well, he hadn't leapt into it. He'd been drugging to it, kicking and screaming. <laughs> Four days after he gets there, he writes Napoleon... He says, basically, Napoleon, listen, my friend, my brother, they hate us here. They hate me. They hate you. Quote, your glory will be shipwrecked in Spain, unquote. Uh, you know, they, the, the, the provincial governors and other officials that were installed by the French and were pro-French, they were being assassinated. Oh, what a week. I mean, everywhere you went to and, and you know, something like that was happening. And worst of all, some of the governors, some of the regions of Spain literally invite the British to come in to Spain and throw the French out. Now, this says an awful lot. Here we have an invader. You hate the invader, but instead of rising up as a people to defeat this, this horrid invader, this this usurper, you call in another invader from a, a, a non-Catholic country. France, after all, was at least somewhat a Catholic country in those days. Uh, and you ask the, the British, of all people, to come in and fight the French. And thus you turn your countryside into a proxy battlefield uh, for uh, the British and the French. Now, I... I personally find that amazing, and to me, it does not speak well of those of those uh, provincial governors. Well, that's uh, that's the introduction to the Peninsula War. But <laughs> before we started this, David and I agreed that there was no way in one episode we were going to be able to cover the entirety of the Peninsula campaign, which obviously went on for many, many years and has very significant implications. But I, I guess you've really hit on all of the key points I'd, I hoped we would cover in this uh, episode. You know, I think that quite often by uh, anti-Napoleonic uh, authors, the, the, the invasion of Spain is kind of portrayed as, well, you know, Napoleon, ambitious dictator trying to control all of Europe. But in fact, it was much, much more complex than that, as you've said. I mean, the, the Spanish royal family were a complete basket case. Um, practically, did literally invite him to come and intervene, willingly went to France. King Charles didn't want to rule, wasn't ruling. He basically abdicated all control and power to Godoy anyway. Um he, he hated his son, he hated Godoy, Godoy hated the king, Godoy hated Ferdinand. They hated each other. It was a basket case. And, you know, Napoleon was uh, pretty confident in his own capabilities at that point in time. It's quite easy, to see, putting yourself in his shoes, to see how he could go, you know what, 
just get the hell out of the way. Let me take care of it. I'll sort it out for you. Um, but obviously it exactly. was a, a huge, a huge turned out to it ended up being for a whole variety of reasons, a huge disaster. And I guess the other really interesting point for me in this as a layperson is the point that you made briefly before that this is where the term guerrilla war fair came from. The word guerrilla or guerrilla, I'm not sure how the Spanish pronounce it, but it comes from the Spanish term for war, guerra, G-U-E-R-R-A. And IWLA, the diminutive at the end of it, meaning a small war. So it was small in terms of, you know, uh, not your traditional one big army versus another big army, but it was unconventional combat, small groups of combatants using surprise, mobile tactics, ambushes, raids. And, you know, I, I know that we get criticized from time to time when we start talking about contemporary issues, but you, you can't read about the Peninsula campaign without thinking of Iraq, can you? It often gets think... compared. Iraq, sorry to interrupt. Iraq often gets compared to Vietnam, but this is where it started. Uh, yeah, this, this was where you know the great Napoleon, at the apogee of his power, of his military power, you know, uh, was dealt a massive death blow. Not not a fatal blow, but you know, everyone agrees that this was sort of the, the the turning point. Trafalgar and then this, I guess, are the two major turning points. And uh, it, this is the beginning of the, the power of guerrilla warfare. It, it certainly is. And you, you can't, there's no perfect parallels in history. Uh, you know, they, they, they didn't have suicide bombers and, and things like that in, in Spain uh, uh, because that concept really hadn't been thought of yet. Uh, but, but there is a lesson to be learned that no matter how justified you, you feel you are, and no matter how much better off a nation might actually be if it followed your lead, clearly Spain would have been better off if they had accepted the reforms of, 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 of Napoleonic France. Clearly the, the people of Iraq would be better off if they were to establish a democracy along the secular lines of Saddam Hussein, but without the tyranny and so on. There's no question that you can, you can make an argument that the people of both countries would be better off, but the fact is the people of both countries apparently don't want to be better off, or didn't want in the case of, of Spain, and it's extremely difficult for... Uh, you know, the, the invading power to, to enforce their will. Now, there's a, there is one big difference, though, at least so far, and that is the British. Uh, in Spain, it's not going to be the guerrilla warfare that defeats Napoleonic France in the Iberian Peninsula. Ultimately, it's going to be a combination of the British invasion with British regular forces and after Napoleon, who we'll see next time, I suppose, comes down and then he leaves, uh, uh, once Napoleon's no longer there, the people he leave, leaves in charge are essentially incompetent when it comes to their handling of the thing. The guerrilla warfare is important, but it's the, it's the British army that comes in, and all of us who, and I, you probably disagree with me on this, but all of us who enjoyed the Sharp uh, series, we know about how the, the British Army came in and, and, and moved its way through, through Spain. And uh, without the British Army, I'm not so sure that's, that, that Napoleon might not have been able to pacify at least the cities and major, major sections of Spain. They may not have ever had the, the complete subservience of Spain and, and the, the uh, continental system, going back to that again here, uh, might never have worked fully because of large areas of Spain not being under good French control. But without the British uh, involvement, I don't think that uh, that that uh, the the Spanish would have necessarily won. Although that takes a little bit of speculation. I mean, they might have, you know, kept it where again all they controlled were a few cities. Now there's no British army invading from the outside in Iraq, 
Uh, there's talk about, oh, there may be some Iranian influence or Syrian influence, but there's no regular Iranian army marching, you know, you know, 25,000 strong in formation to, to take on the American and, and British forces, and there's no Syrian army doing that. So it's, it's a little bit different, uh, but the result's the same, and the, and the basic lesson is the same. If you don't have the people in a country behind you, with or without outside influence, it's going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to impose your will on them. Even, even if you're right, even if those people would have been better off. I won't talk about Iraq because, you know, you can, you can argue one way or the other and that suit yourself, but there's very little doubt in my mind that the Spanish people, under a benevolent King Joseph, with religious toleration and freedom, with the elimination of the Inquisition, with the economic reforms, with increased trade with France, with the with the human rights reforms, you know, liberty, equality, and fraternity kind of thing, would have been much better off. But they were having none of it. Oh, and there's so much else going on at this particular point in time, too, that um, I'm not quite sure where we're going in the next episode. I guess we, we were, Napoleon's also gearing up around about here with the War of the Fifth Coalition, alliance between the Austrians and the, the British again. Um, he's also falling out with the Pope. And uh, yeah, this leads to another, uh, speaking of you know his deal with Catholicism, starts to go awry around about 1807, 1808, and uh, he, he and the Pope decide to excommunicate each other. Uh, what, what do you want to tackle in our next episode, Mr. Markham? Well, I think... I, I really think what we ought to do, and I was going to make this point at the beginning of the show as well, one of the reasons why it's going to take some time on, the, on, on Spain or the Peninsular War uh, is because it really it goes on from, from the, its beginning all the way to essentially Napoleon's first abdication, 1814. So we're talking about a very long period of time, mm-hmm. and we could... We could just kind of keep referring back to it, I suppose. But I think what we should do is sort of like I did in, in Napoleon for Dummies uh, and in and Road to Glory. You, 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 once you start something, you finish it. So I think what we can do next time is we can go through and talk about what's going on in the Peninsular uh, War, recognizing that, of course, once we get into 1809, now you're talking at the same time, there's... There's the, 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 the war against Austria with the Battle of Wagram and so on. And then once you get up to 1812, certainly now you've got the Russian campaign. Uh, and, and as we move into 1814, you've got the, the camp, ca- campaign of France, which leads to Napoleon's first uh, defeat. So we'll, we'll sort of reference these as we go along. And then later on, when we talk about Wagram, the Wagram campaign and so on, we might remind our listeners and ourselves again that, you know, one of the factors in what's going on is that the Spanish thing is still is still occurring. So if, with your kind permission, uh, as you are the master of ceremonies for this thing, uh, that's that's what I would propose we do. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the uh, Peninsula campaign. Took us an hour. Only a minute and uh, about a minute, or excuse me, about an hour long is all. That's not bad. Well, that, that was an hour long to handle like 12 months. Next time we're going to do the, the rest of it, which was like six years. So we're going we're gonna to try and fit that into an hour next time. Well, we'll, we'll speed up the clock a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you anyway, know, Anyway, I like... want to tell you how, how much fun it is to be back here. Uh, as, as I said, I had this abdominal surgery and it slowed me down a little while, but I'm very, very pleased to, to be up and running again. And, and, and we'll, we'll try to do these a little bit more frequently. And we're pleased to have you back, sir. Thank you again to everybody, as David said at the beginning of the show, for the the comments and the feedback, even when they're uh, calling particularly me to task, and fair enough too. I need to be pulled into line. My wife tells me that on a regular basis. We really appreciate the fact that you guys are out there, you're listening, you're uh, entering into the conversation, whether you're agreeing with us or debating us. We're pleased. uh, We're pleased to have you along for the journey. And it is very much. It's a journey and a conversation. And it's a great deal of fun, I hope, for all of us. I'm